Today's scripture reading will come from Psalm 68. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides upon the clouds. His name is the Lord, be exultant before him. Father of orphans and protector of windows is God in his holy habitation. God gives the desolate a home to live in. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious live in a parched land. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain at the presence of God, God of Sinai at the presence of God, God of Israel, rain in abundance, O oh God. You showered abroad. You restored your heritage when it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O oh God, you provided for the needy. The word of the Lord. That text from the Psalm 68 started, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Rayvon, I can't think of anybody better to read that in church. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, wait a few minutes. Our second reading is also from the Hebrew scriptural tradition, from the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. It is a story in Genesis, a, I would call it a mediumly, medium well-known story. Um, probably will... Uh, spark your memory as we hear it. So listen to what the Spirit is saying to you into the church this morning. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So Sarah said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named after you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, Hagar cast the child Ishmael under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? 
Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Oh God, may the meditations of our hearts upon your word this morning, on this beautiful, humid Sunday morning, be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the Bible is full of fanciful stories. Some exaggerated, some really exaggerated, some not completely literally true, some even purely fictional, I would argue. And it's not a question of whether I believe every word of the Bible literally, because if you actually read the Bible, you'll discover that it's full of contradictions. Something's got to be true, either one or the other or neither. Um, contradicts each other, it contradicts itself, the Bible does, in, on the basis of the facts. Um, and still, if we read it closely, I think you'll discover that in spite of these contradictions, the Bible is more true than almost any source we can think of. People of faith argue that it is more true than any source available to humankind. Here is a truth in the Bible. You see, see if you agree with it. Families feud. Boy, do they. I love the quote uh, at the top of your bulletin this morning, a couple of quotes from two very different kinds of people. Desmond Tutu said, you can't choose your family, right? And yet they are God's blessing to you. I've got a cousin, I struggle with that one, okay? George Carlin said, I went to a family restaurant, and it sure was, it was a family restaurant. There were arguments going on at every table. It's true, if you're a Hatfield, it's easy to make enemies out of the McCoys. Family versus family, anger, hatred. The Lancasters and the Yorks from my era, my childhood. The Osmonds and the Jackson Five. Big war went on back in the 1970s. Today, it's the Kardashians and, I don't know, the Von Trapps. You know, they're very different. But this is really where scripture gets it right in the story, the stories it contains like this story this morning. When it comes to family feuds, the real fights, the real feuds are always internal, always inside. Take a moment to look back on your family to see if I'm wrong. All families generate pain that they don't know what to do with. Some families are better at hiding it than others, but all families generate 
pain. I love my family. I was adopted into it. The best day of my life happened when I was five days old. I've been going downhill ever since. But when someone sits in my office and says, Pastor, you'll never believe my family, I always want to say, try me. Try me. In families, as the kids and I talked about, we know how to hurt each other. And that's just what we do as part of being a family. We do it intentionally sometimes and often, more often, unintentionally. Uh, the truth I've learned is that in a family, the real hurt happens when at least one person, probably more than one person, in a marriage, in a larger family, whatever it might be, in any system, uh, it's when somebody feels unloved or left out or insecure about their place in the family, in the system, when they feel like they might be perceived as not good enough or that they feel within themselves that they're not good enough. That feeling, that emotion plays out as tension, as conflict, as bickering, as criticism, as distancing, as seething. In family feuds, because so much is going on under the surface. One side's got to start things off. One side sort of breaks out of the normal, quiet, sedate routine. And the other side, either in a moment or over time, feels forced to make a choice, usually on some kind of not-so-strong principle. It goes something like this. That's not the way I was raised. In my house, my rules. It's my way or the highway. Just for fun, let me ask you, um, what do you do when your partner, your spouse, your daughter, your son starts loading the dishwasher incorrectly? How do you respond? Or when they do that thing they always do when you're with other people? What do you do when your spouse, partner, child starts wearing a nose ring? Or in my family, starts voting Republican? That's just my family. My grandma used to say, if you said the word Republican, she'd say, go out in the porch, and when you get your head on straight, you can come back in. What do you do when your child has the courage to live out their identity, who they really are? You know, June is Pride Month, something I didn't have when I was younger. I heard a really interesting uh, explanation for Pride Month just a few days ago. I just want to share with you. Pride Month is not because, it's not pride because it turns a straight child into a gay child. That's not what LGBTQ friends and their allies are celebrating and giving thanks for. It's called Pride because it can keep a gay child from becoming a dead child. It's really powerful. In the Bible, in a couple of places, you can find very clearly, more than a couple of places, very, very clear words that say that women should be subordinate to men and to keep their mouths closed and heads covered in church. I see a lot of women breaking God's law this morning. You can find a lot of things in Scripture there are two places, only two, about learn to live out their truth, their identity. And we can be part of that. And yet there is so much family pain when either internally or externally we've got, we get the message that we're not living up to expectations. Expectations that most of the time
go unexpressed, if not unacknowledged. Everybody has within them an internal blueprint about how things are supposed to go. When I meet with young couples, or any couple, couples of any age, about getting married, the first thing I ask is, tell me about your parents' marriage. Because that's the blueprint you're going to bring, be bringing in there, whether you like it or not. For me, the first big rebellion, the first time I intentionally disappointed my parents, had to do with my hair. You might not believe it, but I once had awesome hair. Long hair, feathered hair. I've talked about it before. But I grew up in the military. My dad would give me a quarter and tell me to go down and get my hair cut. Like everybody else on the base. And then one day, my mom, God bless her, she switched teams to my team. And we literally hid in the bathroom while my dad was fuming outside, and we wouldn't come out until he agreed to let me grow my hair over my ears, which I did. And it went way beyond my ears, because it was the 70s, man. Today, I'm in my father's place, and I found myself saying to my children, if I talk to my father the way you're talking to me, none of us would be here. And they roll their eyes, yeah. But what's going on is a deeper dynamic in these family feuds, right? We all have this swirling whirlpool of emotions and memories and dreams and hopes and anxieties and fears going on. And whirlpool is a good word. Because if you've ever been in family pain, if you've ever trooped into a family therapist's office with anger in your heart, you feel like you're drowning, don't you? The Bible gets that. Today's story gets that. In one of the saddest scenes of the Bible, Abraham banishes, casts out his son, his firstborn son, Ishmael, and leaves Ishmael and his, his mother, Hagar, to die in the desert. And yet, the good word in the Bible story today the truth, the good news that self-help books and other even philosophy books don't get is that in the midst of this very real painful despair, this drowning feeling, God once again brings this family through. A little background. Sarah and Abraham have been married a long, long, long time. And they have, despite their individual imperfections, and their imperfections as a couple, they've made their marriage work. Somehow they've learned to trust each other and to trust God is with them. You know, when two human beings in a relationship go through serious adversity and make mistakes and get through it somehow in a way they're not even sure how they did, they often develop a deeper, stronger, more honest, tougher love. For each other. They learn that love is a choice you have to make every day. And while I love doing weddings, I really do love doing wedding vow renewals. Because anybody who knows what they know and stands up there and says, I'll do it again, that's pretty impressive. Knowing what they know about the person that they're looking at. That's why it hurt so badly this deep bond that Sarah and Abraham had 
couldn't stop it hurting so badly when she could not get pregnant. Families go through that today. My parents went through that, hence plan B, the adoption route. Sarah knew Abram could have left her because of it, who would have every legal right, and in that time and place, an ethical and moral right to leave her as well. This lack of children was a heartbreak that they shared together and a deep source of insecurity for Sarah and probably some level of resentment for Abraham. And remember what we read last week? Some, somehow these three strange visitors who turn out, turn out to be messengers from God say to Abraham and Sarah overhears them, I know she's old, I know you're old, I know she has not been able to have children, but Sarah will bear a child. And Sarah laughed to herself. And the messengers from God hear her laugh. And she denies, oh, I didn't laugh. And they said, oh, yes, you did. You laughed. But she has a child named Isaac, Isaac, which means he laughs. And after Isaac is born, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac live happily ever after, right? If you believe that, I've got some beachfront property in Arizona I'd like to sell you. Because Isaac wasn't Abraham's first son. And people say the Bible isn't realistic. I have two half-brothers who never knew I existed until about five years ago when they were about 35, 40 years old. A little bit of a disconcerting thing to learn all of a sudden one day. Abraham and Sarah can't have kids, right? For a long time. So they decide to use a surrogate. That's what we would call it today. And their plan was that Abraham was going to take one of the members of his household staff, an Egyptian woman by the name of Hagar, and sleep with her. And that's what happens. She gets pregnant. Hagar gives birth to a baby boy, just as Sarah and Abraham planned. The boy is called Ishmael. What could go wrong? Emotions. People, we don't plan for emotions when we should, I think. As the story goes, when Abraham and Sarah's son, who is born after Ishmael, when Isaac is about three years old, Sarah, his mother, sees Isaac playing with his older half-brother Ishmael. And this makes Sarah angry. And what have we talked about already with the kids and with each other? Anger is the outward expression of insecurity. Right? So Sarah arranges things so that Abraham, the father, has got to make a choice. Essentially, Sarah orders a hit on Ishmael. Very New Jersey kind of story now, right? It shouldn't shock us that Sarah and Hagar didn't get along. Right? They were both bore a child to this man. They both were intimate with this man. Sarah was not going to be able to handle it, and she does not. And so she orders a hit. And we're not really sure what motivated Abraham. It doesn't say. But Abraham, the father, who make, makes a decision finally. I mean, Ishmael is his flesh and blood as well. Hagar is the mother of his oldest son. 
And at one point, God speaks to Abraham in this story and says, don't be distressed because of this boy and the slave woman. I'm going to make a nation of him as well. Not just Isaac, but Ishmael too, because he is your offspring. So we know God's motivations here. It's right there in the text. That's where the answers always are. But we don't know Abraham's thoughts, feelings, motivations. All we know is that he gives the boy and his mom just enough, kind of like a snack for a short hike instead of provisions for a long time in the wilderness. And he sends them out. He banishes them. Either this is a story of great faith or, like other Abraham stories, another example of a great domestic abuse crime. Abraham would have child services called on him over and over again. The hot desert is unforgiving. When the bread and water finally run out, Hagar can't stand to see her son suffer. She finds some shade. She goes off a little distance from her son. She says, oh God, let him die. I just don't want to see it. I know it's going to have to happen. And she starts sobbing, the kind of weeping that can only come from family pain. If you've been there, you know what I mean. And God listens to her cries. And apparently to the cries of the boy as well. In fact, that's when we seem to be most honest with God, right? When we're desperate, when we feel like we're at the end of the road. And an angel calls to Hagar, says, what troubles you? Don't worry, lift the boy up. I'm going to make a great nation of him as well. And then shows her a well full of water, and they survive. God's blessing, God's promise springs this family through the worst kind of pain, betrayal, anger, violence even. But the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael doesn't end there. Sarah dies, according to the story, at the age of 127, and Abraham mourns for her. And when she dies, he is 30, he's 137, so he's 10 years older. And according to scripture, if you do the math, he lives for 38 years after Sarah's death, Abraham does. He dies at the age of 175, or just very old, very elderly. And Abraham gives, as he promised he would, and as God told him to, all of his inheritance to Isaac, only Isaac the official, legitimate son. And Abraham is buried beside his beloved Sarah. And guess who is there at the burial, helping to bury his father? Ishmael. Ishmael, who apparently shows no signs of resentment over his treatment by his father Abraham, nor the fact that Isaac inherited all the wealth and there was a considerable amount, the 25th chapter of Genesis has a dramatic footnote to this story today. It says that Ishmael's descendants settled near the border of Egypt and listen to the words of the 18th verse of the 25th chapter. And they lived in hostility toward their brothers. What's interesting about this family feud story and how it gets reconciled is it faces the fact that family feuds and arguments and pain are cyclical. They happen again. <laughs> 
and again and again. Abraham and Sarah and their boys were not perfect people. Abraham and Sarah did not have an ideal marriage, but they did trust one another and they had faith in a perfect God. And with God's help, they made it through. We can do that too as families, as couples, as a church family. So I want to conclude with this illustration of this family dynamic, the way that God works through our pain. We are not abandoned by God in the valley of the shadow of death. He is with us, even there. Here's the story. Gettysburg, the Battle of Gettysburg, was the turning point in the Civil War, as many of you probably know. There were over 51,000 casualties, people killed, wounded, or missing in that battle that three-day battle alone. And when it was over in 1863, while the war was still going on, President Lincoln gave his Gettysburg Address, which includes these lines, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but the world can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. And in Ken Burns' documentary about the Civil War, his series, which came out a few years back, there were a number of scenes from the 50th anniversary of the Civil War in 1913, or 50th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg in 1913. And a group of old Confederate and old Union veteran soldiers who were still alive, came back to Gettysburg to commemorate the occasion. And old films show the men there talking over old times, eating together and swapping stories. But then, with all these elderly veterans, there was a reenactment of Pickett's Charge, maybe the most famous part of or mini battle within the larger battle of, battle of Gettysburg. The old Union soldiers took their places as they had 50 years earlier among the rocks on Seminary Ridge. The old Confederate soldiers took their places on the farmlands below. After a while, the Confederates started to move across the broad, flat field where just 50 years before they had crossed and many, so many, had died. We could not see the rifles and the bayonets this time, one eyewitness said, but canes and crutches as they made their slow advance toward the ridge with the more able-bodied ones helping the less able-bodied ones. As these Confederate troops got near the Union line, they broke into one long, defiant rebel yell. Then something remarkable happened. Unable to restrain themselves any longer, the Yankees burst forth from behind the stone wall and flung themselves on their former enemies. Only this time, 50 years later, they did not do battle with them. Instead, they threw their arms around them, some in blue, some in gray, the old men embracing each other and weeping. Amen.